Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 147. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, got a cool guest, friend of the show, Mr. Omid Kakshur. Omid, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you, Steve? I am also doing good. Glad that we got a chance to put this conversation together. Now, for those of you out there who don't know Omid, he is a superstar from our Discord. He is also probably has the sexiest voice in all of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as far as I'm concerned. But Omid, (laughs) if you want to provide a more detailed introduction, why don't you go ahead and do that? (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking the introduction would just be saying some words in my accent to uh, appease some <laughs> of the Discord members. Yeah, so I'm a black belt from the UK. I've been training about 13 years. I've got a couple of schools that I that I teach at in South Wales, in, one in Cardiff, one in Swansea. And I've been a big fan of the conceptual approach to Jiu-Jitsu um, probably for the last eight years since I started running my own school. Um, hence how I ended up finding out about BJJ Mental Models. And it's been a, a brilliant community to be part of for the, the time that I've been in it. And I'm yeah, excited to spew some uh, some conceptual topics today. <laughs> awesome. So specifically what I wanted to chat with you about was your your magnum opus that you created while you were in lockdown during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you had shared in the Discord was a pretty significant document that you had put together during the lockdown. You had mentioned that you were kind of looking for a way to be useful when you couldn't train. And you put together a really interesting conceptual framework for body mechanics And it's quite different from any of the stuff that I normally see and interact with. And one of the specific things that you talked about in there was this idea that you had of what you call applying the 45, which is something that I haven't seen or used before. But since I started talking to you and talking to some other folks in the Discord, like Preet Mikkelsen, I've kind of started to see the pattern here and i'd love to explore a little bit more about the work that you've been doing particularly the stuff that um, you've been documenting as part of your framework and what this applying the 45 degree rules and how it can help average grapplers in terms of just tightening up the game plan yeah so the the 45 degree principle was something i looked to develop or ended up coming across after spending a lot of time developing the kind of pressure style for passing and the pressure style for pinning. And these certain things started coming up over and over again, which gave me a bit of a a light bulb moment on 
there's a an underlying concept or underlying concepts at play whenever you're looking to control your partner when you're in the top position. What it ended up developing into is a, a full methodology for passing. And it's for me, it kind of sits between the primary concepts, which you have covered a lot of on, on this show, like alignment and connection and, and wedges and things like that. It takes those concepts and it groups them together in kind of a, a structured, a logical flow that you can use to then enact when you're, when you're trying to make these concepts work against a resistant opponent. That's awesome because one of the main follow-ups that I hear when we talk about something like alignment is that it is a very high-level concept. I can tell someone, okay, there's this thing called alignment. It generally can be used to categorize and guide most decisions in jiu-jitsu. We talk about posture, structure, and base, and most people will listen to that and they'll think, okay, cool, it sounds reasonable enough, sounds like it makes sense, but how do you actually apply something that broad and general to an individual game plan? How do how does a big idea like that map down to what you actually do on the ground? And one of the ways that you're advertising that that can be done is with this 45 degree principle. And I'd love to dig more into exactly how this works and how that can tighten up your top pressure game when you're passing. Yeah, so it's probably worth covering off a concept which hasn't been covered before, but one which I use, which I refer to as range, because that kind of sets the template for where the 45 is applied. So there's like two parts for the 45, but it focuses in on what areas of control on your partner. So I call them control boxes. Uh, probably worth to just cover off range quickly, uh, if that helps. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So the layers of the guard, so lots of people are aware of there being a long, a medium and a close range guard. So long being at your opponent's feet, kind of middle range being at their knees and then close range being at their hips. So those are like distinct boundaries that you can imagine on your, your opponent. What a control box is, is if you were to group those boundaries together. So if you're in the, the long range, your control box would be formed of the feet and the knees. So you could, if you could imagine, you could draw a box between the foot, the knee, the knee and the foot. You could draw that kind of area. Uh, the same with the middle range, knees and hips. You can draw another box for control. And then the close range would be the hips and the shoulders. So those control boxes should tell you where you need to be putting your hands or your body when you're trying to control your partner when you're looking to to pass or pin them. So if I understand correctly, you're saying that, okay, if my opponent is on the bottom in guard, and presumably we're talking about like a supine guard, I'm presuming that if someone is seated upright, the game changes a little bit, although although maybe just in terms of verticality. It can be applied in the, the more sit-up areas, but it's probably best to, to talk about it when they're on their back in the supine position. Okay, so if someone's like, let's just take that as an example, they're on their back in supine, you're basically saying that regardless of the range that you're at, there's going to be roughly four control points on your opponent's body that create a box. And what those four points are is going to depend on how 
far you've penetrated into their guard. So if I'm kind of just like standing sort of outside your guard at a range, maybe I'm trying to grab control of your legs before I pass, then that box would be like their knee, their knee, their ankle, their ankle. Is that kind of what you're saying here? Exactly. Yes. Okay. And presumably then as I pass and I advance, like once I get to the the final layer where I'm trying, you know, I pass the legs, I'm trying to establish control over the top of their body. I'm probably looking then at like shoulder, shoulder, hip, hip. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So top half or side control or mount, all those would be the close range. So hip, hip, shoulder, shoulder. Mm-hmm. It's an important kind of concept to understand because... It kind of gives weight to the idea of keeping your elbows close to your body. It's kind of a a question I get a lot from the students, you know, you're encouraged to keep the elbows close to to prevent connection to your body and, and to prevent your opponent from being able to control you. But then when you get into positions like half guard, you're taking your elbow away from your body to control with, say, an underhook. So what range does is it, it allows for when it's okay to do that. So, for example, with our control box at the feet and the knees, you try and maintain your control within that box. If you reach beyond it, you could imagine reaching beyond that box, you'd have to extend your elbow so your elbows come away from your body. So you've exposed yourself and put yourself at risk of sweeps or submissions. But when you get to a point where you've beaten the legs and you say you're in a top half, Reaching the elbows away from the body is still within the range that you're in. So it then allows for that. It kind of, the concept allows for you to kind of break this rule of elbows away from the body because it explains why it's okay in that area. I see. I see. That that sounds like a, a specific way of managing when your elbows are in and out. On the podcast before, we've talked about that as limb coiling, the idea that By default, you want to have your limbs retracted in unless there is a good reason not to. (laughs) Like there's actually a deliberate reason why you're extending and also that you only do that. You only extend a limb out if you can do it in a situation where your opponent can't counter grip you and use that as a lever. And what you're talking about here with control boxes seems like a very specific way to understand how that works in practice. And if I understand correctly... I guess an example of this would be, okay, if I'm, let's say I'm playing a long range guard, you know, I, I'm not technically inside your guard, like a closed guard, your legs are in front of me. I'm trying to grab and control your legs at that distance. That would mean that the control box is between your knees and your ankles. And it sounds like what you're saying is basically as the passer, I have to play in my sandbox, right? I, I want to keep my arms inside that box because if and that makes sense because if i were to overextend if i were to try to reach over your legs and grab your shoulder now suddenly you can put your feet on my hips and lift me up and throw me and do all sorts of things that i probably don't want you to do is that a correct understanding here exactly yeah so i always find it useful to understand when when a red flag should be waving and when especially when people are first starting out they don't always Mm -hmm. They aren't always able to identify when that red red flag is there, but giving them this understanding of, okay, you're here, your hands shouldn't stray beyond this point because you'll be out of range. It then twigs in their mind, okay, I, I shouldn't do that. Or if I do it, I'm doing it with the understanding that I may be at a little bit of a risk in this moment, but the risk might have good rewards. So I'll, I'll go for it anyway. Mm-hmm. 
So at least they can answer to themselves, okay, it broke down because I made, I took the risk in that moment and I got punished for it. That makes sense. I have a question. How does this control box conversation apply when we're talking about leg locks? Because yes, of course, it makes sense that if I am at distance from you, for example, I've got this control box within your knees and your ankles, and that's where I want my hands to play. But what about my legs? Is it okay for me to step my leg inside the control box? Because it feels like if I do that, I'm opening up things like Della Hiva guard or leg entanglements. And I just like to understand how the control box rule applies to foot placement. Yeah, you can step in. You know, as you step into the guard and you're looking to say knee cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you step in with your lead leg and then you're looking to knee cut across your partner. You can then use your legs as control points within the control box. So that kind of leads on to the 45 then. So it's a, a kind of a good place to, to include uh, what the 45 is. Now we understand the control box itself. What you're looking to do with the 45 is you're always looking to do two main things. You want to create an anchor point, which is very analogous to wedges. You know, create, create a point of control within the control box. Typically, or nearly always, that control point will be at the nearest corner of the control box to you. So say I'm passing to my opponent's right, it would be down in this little corner, uh, their right-hand corner. Uh, That's the point at which I'm looking to create an anchor. In creating an anchor, so I could do that with my legs, I could do that with my arms, I could do that with my hip. In creating that anchor point, so let's use the close range as an example, because I think it's one that everyone can imagine in their mind. I'm I'm in half guard, I'm controlling their near side hip, creating an anchor point on that part of the control box and I'd lock it in place with my legs. What will happen when I lock the that point in space? I've forced their hips to face towards me. Okay, so I've locked their hips and their hips are facing towards me. Now for them to maintain alignment or posture, they will always look to bring their shoulders in line with their hips. So I've locked their hips in place and they bring their shoulders towards me, okay, to keep this posture uh, maintained. And then that gives me the second point of the 45 degree principle. I want to then apply some sort of pressure or some sort of reverse direction on the the shoulder in this case. So it's called the 45, okay, we can be a bit loose with the geometry, but if you imagine a box, we're in one corner, the opposite corner, the things at 45 degrees from the point we're at, we're looking to push that back towards the floor. So we deny our opponent their alignment. Okay, so yeah, we've we've locked their hips, they want their shoulders to come towards us, and we, we know that then that's the fight. The fight is to push that shoulder back to the mat so that it gets to a flat position. And essentially, we've locked them then in a position where they're they're completely out of alignment and then they're more susceptible to our progression. I see, I see. So something that I think is worth clarifying there when we're talking about this control box, you don't want to just stick your arm or leg in the middle of the control box because then you're opening up 
arm traps or leg entanglements. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you're saying is you want to control, and this makes sense, you want to control the control points. Mm -hmm. So the four corners of that box, right? You're, You're not sticking your arm or your leg inside the box. You're trying to grab the corners which is going to mean your opponents, like in the case of their legs, it would mean their knees, their ankles, something like that. And then when you talk about this 45 degree principle, you're saying that ideally you want to have a control point on one side and then a control point on the opposite side of their body such that it cuts a 45 degree angle. Exactly. And normally the way that this is going to work in practice is the first grip you're probably going to get on the near side of you is going to be the lower down one. Mm -hmm. And then as you cut across, the higher up grip is probably going to be the one that's across on the other side of their body. So an example would be, like you said, if I'm going for a knee cut pass, I'm cutting over their near side knee But then I try to get a far side underhook or a far side lapel grip or something like that to punch them back down. So if I were to draw their control box, right, and we're saying that the control points would be shoulder, shoulder, hip, hip, I would be sitting on basically their near side hip and then reaching across for a far side underhook, which would draw roughly a 45 degree angle across that box. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. It also adds a bit of weight to why you why the underhook is is a good thing to go for in that exact example. It follows the forty five. Yeah. So it's always been a rule in jujitsu ever since you know since I've been training that okay, what do I do from here? I'll win the underhook. Mm-hmm. So, but there's always the question: okay, why? Not just win it because it's a good thing to do. Why is it a good thing to do? And one of the reasons, that, other than connection and things like that, is. It allows you to apply the 45 so that you're breaking your opponent's alignment and taking away their ability to, to, to fight back. Got it. One of the most important things when you're trying to pass someone's guard is to keep both of their shoulders pinned on the mat the way through. A common mistake that I see is people are so exuberant about trying to pass the guard that they're so focused on getting their leg free and they're trying to kick that leg free. They're trying to get their body past their opponent's legs that they're not even focused on keeping their opponent's shoulders pinned to the mat. And if you let your opponent get up on their side while you're passing, odds are you're not going to pass successfully. You might get your leg free, but they could wind up coming up for a single or even getting behind you. So that's where that far underhook comes in or that lapel punch when you're trying to pass. It is the the pressure on their far shoulder that prevents them from getting up onto their side, which is key to a lot of guard passes. So I, I get what you're saying here. I guess the question I would have is, are there any counterexamples? Because one of the ways, for example, that I often pin people from side control is I will get a near side cross face and I'll also grab and control their their near side hip. So in that case, I've got near side, near side. So I, I don't have a 45 degree angle at that point. I'm wondering how and I'm sure there are other examples, too, where people are reaching across to the far side of the body like they're going for a, an Americana or something. I'd, I'd like to know how that squares away with this 45 degree rule. So, yeah, you've got both controls on each side. So the an important thing to understand about the 45 is you can indirectly apply the, the kind of diagonal control, this, this, this idea of the 45. So if instead of having an underhook, I have a strong cross face on the near side, I'm still forcing that far shoulder down to the floor. 
So there's lots of ways in which you can apply the 45. You can go directly to it, like directly push it to the floor, which is what like the lapel grip or the unhook would do. Or you could grab the near side arms, for example, say the knee cut position and lift that near side elbow off the floor. And in lifting that near side elbow up, you are essentially forcing the, the other shoulder down to the mat. And the same with the, the, the cross face. Because a lot of, lot of the time, the cross face itself would, the hand would make its way over to that far side and you use your weight into the position and essentially flatten the shoulders. So you kind of hit the nail on the head there with the ultimate goal is to get those shoulders flat when you're applying the 45. I got it. I got it. So it, an example here that is very common in the gi is if I'm trying to complete a knee cut pass, I often may choose to grab your near side arm and pull it up off the ground. And the reason I do that is because it forces you into a position where both of your shoulders are going to be likely to be touching the mat. Mm-hmm. Or similarly, if I'm playing Kesagatame, I pull that near side arm off the ground and that gives me control of the far side shoulder because it turns your body. So even though I may not be directly pinning the far side shoulder, there are other ways I can grab things on the near side that would allow me to control the far side. And the cross face is an example of that because when I'm creating cross face pressure on top of my opponent, I'm forcing their body away and I'm wedging against the ground so that their far side shoulder is actually pinned. Exactly. So flattening the shoulders is is, is a good rule of thumb. I guess what, what the the additional aspect of this is is the this anchor point. So rather than just focusing on getting the, the shoulders flat, as long as you're following the understanding of range, so you're not looking to control the shoulders when your partner's got, say, a knee shield, you know, you're not overextending past the range that you're in. Um, by maintaining this pin on, or this anchor, this wedge on this near side or creating this anchor point, it kind of adds additional, amplifies the pressure you're putting onto your opponent. So a, a, a really good example that some people might be familiar with is the knee cut, for example, the situation where you 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 bring your leg through too quickly. So I've, I've gone to the knee cut. I've got my knee on the floor next to my opponent's hip. I've got my foot on the other side. So I'm like pinning that leg to the mat. And then I'm controlling their upper body in some way, getting their shoulders flat. And then I release my foot too early. So I bring my foot out rushing to go for the pass. And they manage to off balance me in some way because they essentially get their their alignment back and they get back in control of their body and they they can force you into a post into a balance break and they are able to recover the position whereas what the 45 directs you to do is to maintain your leg in the position that it's in so it's keeping that pin on their hips and then make sure that you've fully isolated the shoulders to a a strong pin where you've got full control and then only once you have established that you then release their hip and then to again if you really wanted to maintain the 45 you would circle back around and create an anchor point by going hip to hip so basically you're maintaining that that angled diagonal control across them 
I see. I see. Yeah. And that's a great example. Uh, I think I brought it up earlier. The over exuberance of the knee cut pass where someone is so, so intent on getting their leg free that they actually let go of the pressure that they're putting on the person's near side hip. And that opens up the ability for them to do things like wrestle up to the single things that you generally would not want them to do when you're trying to complete a pass. So a question I have when it comes to applying the 45 degree rule is there a concern regarding the size and strength of your opponent? So is there a situation, for example, where if I'm fighting up several weight classes and my opponent just so happens to be strong enough that they can bench me if I put my weight down on top of them, is there anything specific that I would want to do against someone who's that big and that strong comparative to me? It still works, you know, as much as the the weight difference allows, because you're focusing on, I like to refer to my idea of fundamentals as being attribute free. So you focus in on positioning over um, the, a requirement for strength or, or any other thing to make make these ideas work. If you've, regardless of the size of your opponent, if you've got their hips facing in one direction and their shoulders facing in another they're always going to be less powerful in those positions. So it might be that you look to enact them with a little bit less chest-to-chest commitment. So maybe in the gi, you know, focus on lapels and sleeves to, to get the shoulders turning away from you so your opponent can't pull you in and, and use just body weight to kind of roll you. But it still works because what you, as part of the the posture break when you're using these using this idea is you're always looking to not only disconnect your opponent's hips torsionally like along the spine so hips facing away shoulders flat you're always looking to use some some lateral i call it rinsing of the spine you know so driving the shoulders so you've got it twisted and then you drive the hips and shoulders away from each other you know, drive the shoulders further away and the hips further behind, which again puts them in like a chiropractor's type position and takes away the, the, the big fight that they would have if you, if you left them more connected to their mechanics and their control. So you brought up something there that I saw in your documentation, but I'd never heard that terminology before. What do you mean when you say rinsing the spine? <laughs> it's quite a, it's a funny one. So let's say you have a really wet tea towel and you want to get all the water out of the tea towel. Oh, okay. So you, you would rinse it by twisting it and turning it in all the different directions that you can for the, for the water to come out. So it was kind of a, a way to visualize it to our students, you know, you, you're disrespecting the spine as much as you can when, <laughs> when you're using this. You know, you're twisting it, you're bending it laterally, because that's the only way that you'll get true attribute-free control. You know, you're just using your position yes. rather than using strength. Okay, I thought this was some weird UK slang that I'd never heard before, but that actually <laughs> makes sense, which is that in our parlance, we'd call that breaking posture, right? You're basically taking the spine out of alignment by twisting it. And one of the nice things about attacking from 45 degree angles on the opponent's body is 
it's going to put your opponent in situations where their spine does twist. And that's kind of a side benefit of doing that, especially if, like we gave an example earlier, you're doing this by putting cross-face pressure down. That's going to force the person's neck to turn, which puts a twist in the spine. Although, if I can say, I love the term disrespecting the spine. I think that's awesome, <laughs> and I might have to start using that. Yeah, well, it helps get the idea, the idea across as well. So. One kind of interesting progression from the 45, which falls into the full methodology is, and that's something that fully got developed during the, the pandemic when I had nothing but time to think about this, this kind of, this kind of stuff was what happens once you've managed to get the shoulders flat. So the 45 degree principle is kind of what you use as you're you're entering into one of the levels of the guard so you're, you're progressing and you hit this first edge of the control box and your opponent will have certain fights that they'll have to prevent you from being able to progress if you manage to apply the 45 uh, correctly and control them and get to a point where you fully pin the shoulders the kind of rule set of the control kind of flips on its head. So what the, the 45 done is it pins the, so I'll use the close range because it's the easiest one to understand. It pins the hip and it prevents rotation of the shoulders. But the ultimate expression of preventing rotation of the shoulders is to then have the shoulders pinned. And once the shoulders are pinned and you have your control there, then what you're looking to do is create rotation in the hips so as so you basically you control one edge of the control box and then stop rotation and then once you've stopped rotation to the point of of no more movement okay unless the floor doesn't exist and you can rotate the shoulders 360 degrees you've pinned those shoulders and then you you're looking to force their hips to rotate and what that does it again it gives you a direction to make sure that you're not forgetting that it's a full body fight. You're using your upper body and your lower body to contest your opponent's upper body and their lower body. So just because you've managed to get to this good control on the shoulders, the fight isn't done yet. Because if they can get their posture back and their alignment, their hips and shoulders, then they're going to be a problem again. So so that the next step, once you've managed to fully enact the 45, is then look to Pin, once the shoulders are pinned, then look to force rotation in the hips. I see. So what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that this principle may not apply if you're fighting someone in zero gravity. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, exactly. You need the floor. <laughs> the floor is is your friend in jiu-jitsu, and that's where your power comes from. And Yeah, you only pin the shoulders because the, the floor is there, and yeah, gravity's put them there. If it's not, then you just keep twisting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a follow-up here, a position that comes to mind that I'd love to see squared into this is Kesagatame, because generally with Kesagatame, your primary focus is on your opponent's upper body, particularly the shoulders and the neck. And of course, this is one of the criticisms of Kesagatame, which is that if you go for this position and your opponent gets out, because you're so far forward onto them, you might wind up giving your back by accident. I would ask if you are playing Kesagatame as a top player, is there anything that you can do to square that principle with this applying the 45 degree rule to tighten up the position a bit more from what it would normally be? Yeah, so the the 45 is 
the option that you have when your opponent has uh, their frames on you. So the Keza Katami, or what I call the open side control, which would be when you're on your knees and you're in side control and your opponent's near side arm is open, so you're essentially hip to armpit. Once you get there, then you're in a different aspect of the methodology. So essentially, I call it closing the box. So let's imagine the control box is from the long range, feet and knees. As we move up the control box, the control box moves mid-range, close range. And that is kind of dictated by your position of your hips. So if my hips are at your feet, knees or hips, that essentially defines what range I'm in. But if you manage to get your hips all the way up to the line of the shoulder, and the only way you really do that is by being inside that near side arm, then you've closed the box. So if you imagine the tail of the box is catching up with the lead of the box and it essentially closes on itself. Hmm. When you've done that, because you're so high up on your opponent, you have full connection to them. You know, if you were to tally up your connection to them and theirs to yours, yours would be much higher, if not 100% to zero. They are no longer in a position to to be able to fight back effectively. So, you know, they've uh, their feet on the floor and can't make their hips affect you. Their, their arms can't connect to you. So that's how I would fit it into the methodology. To, to improve the, the Kesekatami as a... As a control position itself, you know, if you've got the the, the head ad- adequately lifted and the, and the elbow adequately controlled, you should be able to hold your opponent there for a long time. So, you know, you see Olympic level athletes in judo stuck in those positions and they're not stuck in there because they they don't train jiu-jitsu or they don't know the ways of getting out of those positions. They're stuck there because when it's, applied fully correctly and, and you're, there's no incentive to move from the pin, you can hold someone there for a, a good amount of time. Got it. Got it. So it sounds like you're saying that there comes a point where if you are so far up on top of your opponent and you're able to pin their shoulders just by body positioning and by virtue of being so high up, and Kesegatame is kind of, the, I guess, the prime example of that, mm-hmm. then you don't have to be as concerned with applying the 45 because you're so high up on them that you're already getting their shoulders pinned to the mat at that point. And that's really the goal, right, is to keep their shoulders pinned. Exactly, yeah. So all of the other aspects, the 45 or the kind of pinning the shoulders and forcing the hips away, if you can get inside that near side arm, then it's a different, you're in a different fight there, but you're in a very dominant fight. So yeah, you've kind of completed the, the levels of connection and removed your opponent's frames. And yeah, you're in a very dominant position there. So you don't need the 45 because the resistance has, has been nullified. But one thing I would add though, is that even if you're very high up on your opponent and you're basically sitting on their shoulders and their neck, you probably still want to be aware of this 45 degree rule because by virtue of the fact that you're only pinning their shoulders it is possible for them to bring their legs into the game and and the same goes for a high mount for example Mm -hmm. if i am playing kesegatame i am focused on pinning your shoulders but i'm not paying attention to really your hips at all 
And I probably should be to some degree because there is the possibility that if you're able to push my head back, you might actually be able to armbar or even crucifix me from the bottom in Kesakatame. And that's possible because I'm not applying the 45. And so your hips are actually free to move as the person on the bottom. It's not the end of the world. It just means I have to be aware of that, that it is possible for you to engage your legs in ways that you probably couldn't do if I was doing a more traditional side control pin. Additionally, if I'm on a high mount on top of you, so I'm like up in, you know, I've got my knees up in your armpits and I'm postured up. The same thing applies. I'm not applying the 45 there and I'm basically leaving your hips free. And my hope is that I'm so high up on you that your legs aren't going to be that useful, but that's not guaranteed. There are very flexible people where if you get a high mount on them, they'll kick their legs up and put their feet into your armpits, which I hate, (laughs) and then they'll try (laughs) to sweep you from there, right? So, I mean, it's not a great game plan unless you're super flexible, but those people do exist. So I would say even in those positions, applying the 45 is important to understand because you have to realize, okay, I may have this guy's shoulders pinned, but his hips are free. And if his hips are free, that means his legs can move. And if his legs can move, that means if he's an octopus, he might throw his leg up into my face at some point, which is a common defense from those positions. Yeah, 100%. That's why I would, in that specific scenario, try and get their chin to touch their chest, because that makes it harder for them to use their hips. But like you said, there are some people who are very flexible. That's why I tend my personal game, I tend, I don't use Kesakatami. I'll pretty much always be on my knees for side control and work to an open side control. And even in mount, I don't tend to go high mount. I would rather control the hips and the shoulders at the same time and work my options from there because there's no surprises then. I, you know, I'm, I'm aware of all the, the options that my opponent has and it narrows down the fight to things which are easier and easily understood in in those those situations yeah makes sense you know what's funny is the way that i play kesagatame a lot these days is actually i use it as a transition into neon belly which is funny because it means i'm actually applying the 45 what i'm doing is i'm i hold someone in kesagatame and i try to create enough pressure on them that they're pinned down on their shoulder and then i'll pop up and put my my knee on their near side hip Mm -hmm. so easy two points if you can get there yeah and the reason i you know when i'm doing that i basically have near side control on them with my knee and then far side control on their shoulder so you actually you can go to a 45 degree angle from Kesagatame. And that is often a good strategy to do if you feel you're losing the position. Sometimes this happens where you're in Kesagatame and you just can't make things happen or you feel like your opponent might actually be on the verge of getting out. One of the things that's good to do then is to walk your legs back and pop up to neon belly. In addition to being a point scoring position, the benefit then is you are much more likely to be able to move on successfully to a new position. Whereas the thing about Kesakatame is it, if you stay there, it's hard to progress further into another position unless you back up a little bit. So yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. You're basically bringing yourself back into, back into the control of, of two elements at once. Yeah. And what's interesting is this 45 principle kind of plays into a lot of the, uh, pressure pit stop type game that I see a lot where people will go to a like a waypoint or a pit stop position where they'll get kind of to the point where they're in the guy's half guard and they're almost past and then they'll stabilize there in that 45 degree position make the guy work a bit 
and then go for the pass just to burn some of his energy. Or in some cases, guys will intentionally reinsert themselves back into a 45 degree angle. So they might even be past the guard and allow themselves to be put back into guard. But if they can do that while continuing to hold the 45 degrees, they can just pass again. So it's another good way to rack up points, right? As long as you are controlling 45 degrees on your opponent's body, it's quite easy to pass whenever you want to. So a pressure passer sometimes will get the 45 and they they know they can get the pass from here, but maybe they'll just make their opponent work to try to escape, to burn some energy, maybe create some even more openings. So they won't necessarily be in a rush to pass, even though they know they could get it. Or they might even willingly give up the guard and allow a regard, because as long as they can still hold the 45 while their opponent is regarding, they can just go for another pass again. So there's a lot of ways that you can farm the point system if you understand this mental model. Exactly, yeah. A great example of that was Guy Mendes. So he had a, a pressure-based game when he was competing. He used the knee cut a lot. And he was very well known for his kind of baseballs or bravo type choke in the gi. And what he would do for that setup would he would maintain his pin on the leg. So basically not going for the full knee cut, kind of stopping while still in control of that bottom leg as his opponent's trying to maintain his posture and bring his shoulders in line with his hips, he would then use that to set up the grips that he would use for the baseball bat choke. So yeah, you do see it gained a lot at the highest level. Well, let me ask a follow-up question because I think a lot of people are probably getting PTSD from this conversation because if you've fought a good pressure passer, you've probably had this done to you and you understand how frustrating it can be because you're stuck on the bottom position. I would love to get your thoughts on how understanding the 45 degree concept can improve your defense off the bottom because it is implied that you should be able to reverse this rule. If you're the person on top, you want to find and keep 45 degree angle control, but it should then be implied that if you're the person on the bottom, you don't want to give up 45 degree angle control. So I'm wondering how this manifests as a defensive strategy when you're the person on the bottom. That's really interesting, actually, because it's something that I uh, very recently I got into Preet's defensive system. And what was really interesting about it was that works because it denies the 45. So if you think about what the 45 needs is that the hips, I'm going to use the close range because it's where Preet's system lives most of the time but okay so you want the hips and the shoulders at the same time for the 45 you want to pin the hips and drive the shoulders flat the defensive postures that Pritz developed do is they make that double connection hips and shoulders very difficult so you have to choose one or the other so i don't know if people know the positions but something like the baby bridge or the hawking they angle your body in, in a certain way. So you basically elongate the side that's closest to your partner, either with an extension for the baby bridge or a crunch for the hawking. And what that does, it puts you as a defensive person in a position where you force the top player to choose whether they're going to be on your hips or your shoulders. So it kind of directly denies the 45 if you've ever fought someone who plays 
Preet's defensive stuff, it is quite annoying because like you said, you, they basically twist their body in a way that I'll, it looks really uncomfortable and awkward when you see it at first. And I still haven't quite figured out how to do it comfortably, but the benefit to that position is it denies access to those four control points. It makes it very, very hard for your opponent to really get any of the control blocks. It's hard to pin his shoulder. It's hard to get the hip. And like you said, you turn your body and elongate it at an angle where the person attacking you kind of has to choose. Do they want to attack the top of your body or more like your the mid range of your body? So do I want to attack your shoulders or do I want to attack your hips? It's very hard if someone is playing those defensive games to attack them both at the same time, which makes it very hard to apply the 45 and that makes it harder to pass and maintain the position. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's still the right way to approach the defensive stuff as the person on top because you that's what you want but it just makes the fight more competitive for both people so yeah it's interesting because the idea i always had about the kind of the anti-45 before was a bit more rudimentary you know try and keep your shoulder from pinning to the floor and do this that and the other but uh, after coming across the, the the defensive stuff it's like okay that's it like that's the that that's the antithesis of, of what you're looking to do on top. And hence why I, I was like, right, I definitely need to learn this because, you know, it, it kind of confirms what I, I thought to be true on top by being more difficult to deal with on top. I think that even if you don't play the defensive BJJ material, it's still important to understand this and you can still apply it because it just requires a degree of awareness as to which side of your body your opponent is controlling so mm-hmm. if for example my opponent is trying to pass my guard and i detect that they've got a control point on my near side i need to immediately understand that my focus now needs to be denying them access to my far side because the 45 requires one near side control point and one far side control point so if you're knee cut passing me you need some way to control the far side of my body and that could be either by grabbing my near side arm and pulling it up off the floor, which forces my body to turn, or it could be by getting an underhook or a lapel punch on the far side and pinning me down. But however you do it, it helps you make a split second decision. And I mean, this is something that I, I know newbies have a hard time dealing with is just they get totally overwhelmed by all of the variables of jujitsu. So I know how frustrating it is when you're starting out and some experienced person is passing your guard and just it, you can't think fast enough because you're having trouble keeping track of where all of your body parts are and this other person who's just slicing through your guard like warm butter. One of the nice things about this 45 degree rule is that it gives you a very simple thing to think about when you're being passed. If your opponent is controlling your near side hip, what you need to understand is you cannot let them control your far side shoulder because that would give them a 45 degree rule. So how do we do that? Well, it means that immediately you pinch that armpit closed. You don't give them anything. And it also means you don't let them grab your near side arm and pull it off the floor because those are the two ways that your opponent can manipulate your body to get that 45. So it can still be useful when you need to make a snap decision on the defense. Just understand when someone is passing, okay, which point of the control box do they have here on me? And how do I block them from getting the 45 degree opposing point of the control box? Because if they can get both of those, then I'm stuck. Exactly. Yeah. I would also want like add to that and say, if you can deny the anchor point, so you, you're that one step ahead 
again. So uh, the process, I call it swallowing the knee. So on top, I want to swallow your knee between my legs and that will give me that anchor point on the hip. But very savvy guard players will be very active in, in undoing that. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll bring their hand into play and use that to to free that knee so that anchor point then gets removed and it makes it more more difficult to even get to the point where the, the 45 is relevant at the close range. You have to get back and fight it at the middle range and that's pushing you backwards when you, you want to be going forwards. Got it. Makes sense. I, I love the terminology, swallowing the knee. That actually <laughs> makes complete sense though when you think about it. Yeah, if if you are trying to pass someone's guard and their knee is still in play, then it's going to be extremely hard unless you do a, a really, really good distance pass. But if you are trying to pass from a closer range, then yeah, you want to trap that knee and not have that knee in play. And it, that basically prevents them from being really able to maximize the use of that leg that you're trapping. Yeah, it's kind of on the, the same point. But, you know, going against savvy guard players and, and they give you those things, you, you definitely have to be <laughs> wary. So if if someone lets you get these control points, and they, they let you get them, then it, that often can be a trap. So kind of going back to the idea of range and if someone's playing like a half butterfly, so I don't know if you've ever played someone who likes leg locking using butterfly hooks as setups, they will often let you come and control their head while they've still got that butterfly hook in, in connection. And what they're doing is they're, they're baiting you into an out-of-range grip because they they've got their hook in your hip, so you should be fighting your the medium to long range in reality. So what you should be fighting is down near their hips, and they they will allow you to come and control their head. And then what you do is you put yourself out of range in a vulnerable position, and then they use that to, to create the off balances or the attacks on the arms or getting underneath your legs. So. Again, these kind of concepts or ideas give you the reason why that might not be a good, you know, why is that a trap? Why, why is this person letting me have more than, than they should? And mm -hmm. if you understand that the, the butterfly is the reason that, that they're letting you have it, then you can say, okay, I won't, even though it's very tempting, I won't take it. I'll come back and fight in my, in my range and, and work here. And then. Once it's more comfortable, that hook might be out, then I can go and get the head and then and continue passing. Yeah, I have had people play this game on me and it's so tempting to try to go for a cross face on someone when you see a clear path to their head. But you have to be careful not to make the mistake of going outside of your control box. If their knees are still in play, you need to be inside that control box. If you try to reach all the way over, to get a cross face when you're when you're going outside of the control box you're not yet ready to be going into a close range what can happen is they can elevate you go to leg entanglements usually it's not a good scene <laughs> so i think that one of the nice things about this control box mental model is that it encourages restraint in the person passing guard it encourages them not to throw their body too far forward before it's time because this is a great way for experienced people on the bottom to exploit the top person if they go outside of their control box it opens up things like leg entanglements it opens up go behinds and single legs so don't do that always be yeah. aware of the control box and play within it or if you do just know you're you're doing it at risk 
So, yeah, you know, and there might be a reason to do that risk, right? If you're down on points and you're fighting on a clock, then, yeah, you might want to think about taking a shortcut here and there. But generally speaking, I think being more conservative is a good idea. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, fundamentally, when you're developing your skills, follow follow this and you'll develop those skills to a very good level, which will help forever in your jiu-jitsu. But if you're in a competition and you're down on points, then caution to the wind. Yeah, just as long as you understand that that's the main thing is knowing what these the underlying risks are and 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 why you're doing it and and, and why it's a good idea or not. So when you're teaching, how do you roll this concept into your instruction? Is this something that you you encourage your students to understand? Is it part of how you teach techniques? This forty five degree mental model, or is this still in the lab? No, I've been, yeah, it's been part of my curriculum for a few years now. I try and give lots of different forms of media and how I deliver it. So that's hence how I end up writing, God, 8,000 words on it and, and also teaching it in class. And so I, depending on the level of the class, you know, I, I, I can do a very theory heavy where explain what the idea is and, and how it applies. But then I really like to tag it on to a technique so people can get their kind of teeth into it and, and get it working and understand it so that then the why makes sense. Because a lot of the times with the conceptual approach, like the, the very high level concepts, it makes a lot of sense to people who, have, who are very experienced because they kind of they recognize the kind of the flavor of it and how it applies to what they already know. But when people are more green in the sport, it's hard for them to attach it to anything tangible. So you can't get away from attaching these concepts to, to techniques to actually get people to, to understand them. So yeah, a lot of, uh, and I spend a lot of time teaching pressure passing because I love pressure. I think it's the most fun part of jujitsu and, always reinforcing these ideas explaining to people that this this concept is here you know like the, the anchor point is why we're doing this the the 45 is why we're doing that you know the risk is here because we're out of range so yeah basically just bombard them with with as much, as, as much info as i can and then hopefully some of it will hit the dartboard or stick <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's important if you want to teach concepts that you have to anchor them to some sort of technique so that people can understand how things apply on the ground and they have something they can actually practice. I think sometimes when people listen to me go on on this podcast about concepts, they think that I'm suggesting that you only do concepts and you don't do techniques. But I mean, at the end of the day, you have to move your body and you have to do something. The concepts should be just the the framework that you hang the te techniques off of. And the techniques are just specific manifestations of a bunch of different concepts. So you kind of can't have one without the other. I like to think of the concepts as the context, you know, so it, 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 it kind of gives you the why. So, you know, why are we doing this? So the, the concepts should, for me, that's where they come in. It's kind of, we all talk about the why and the conceptual kind of realm of jujitsu, but that, that's it. You know, people need context for what they're doing. Once they have that context, they can they can take more ownership of it. And then once they get more ownership of it, then that's when they really start developing uh, the understanding because that's the idea behind this is you're trying to build students or practitioners which truly understand 
what's going on rather than just roboting what they see and and kind of you know all the frustrations that 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 has i'm sure you you've experienced it well as steve early on kind of that frustration of you know drilling something and it not really having any context and not really understanding why and then finding out there's these these jiu-jitsu nerds around the world which are, are, are putting context into play and then you know big smiles and 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 really kind of changes your view on how to approach training and how you know how rewarding it can be in, in developing these understandings yeah one of my favorite things about the concept approach is that it helps me do a lot of mental house cleaning. I, when I do jujitsu, there's just a nonstop barrage of new techniques and new positions, even and new details to understand. And just with the very limited time I have, I just can never keep on top of all of the stuff. And the thing I love about concepts is that it allows me to actually focus on learning less because if I understand concepts then all of these new things that I see and that people create, I can just kind of shoehorn them onto these existing concepts and understand them almost immediately. If you show me a position that I haven't played before or a guard pass that I haven't played before, I can use the existing concepts that I know. So I could, for example, say, okay, well, this guy's doing something I've never seen before, but I do know he's probably trying to apply the 45. So how can I deny that? So now I don't need to be super focused on pulling out of my out of my Rolodex. Okay, which of these, which escape do I use or which defense do I use and counter to this? I can just focus on adhering to concepts. And sometimes you can even just manifest techniques on the fly based on that if you understand the concepts well enough. Exactly, yeah. Well, let me ask you, Omid, I know that this is just the tip of the iceberg for the the Omid system. <laughs> if people want to learn more about your work, do you have a link or somewhere that you can send them to so where they could learn more about this and check it out? I don't really post much online other than to my students, but I go ham in the Discord. So if, <laughs> if people, I, I post the, I give guys in the Discord access to my Google Classroom and post up techniques that i've taught during class and the can you swear on this yes you can swear shoot the shit with all the guys in the discord about <laughs> techniques and what works and what doesn't so yeah get get in there it's uh, it's it's awesome awesome and of course on our side if you want to check out all of this stuff if you want to get access to our database of concepts and learn more about the ideas we talk about here on the show or if you just want to contact me bjjmentalmodels.com is the best place to do that and of course we in addition to the public podcast have a whole series of awesome premium stuff i actually was just looking back we launched three complete new audio series courses it was just within the last quarter on there there's a lot of content there in addition to rolling reviews if you want to check out our premium service please do consider it premium.bjjmentalmodels.com is the place you do it it's the single best way to help support the show guarantee you it's probably one of the best bjj investments you'll make so please do consider checking it out there is a free trial again that's premium.bjjmentalmodels.com Omid, thank you so much for coming by, buddy. I really appreciate it. I think this was some super cool stuff. I can't wait to hear a bunch of nerds on Reddit talking about 45 degree angles after this. <laughs> Cheers, Steve. Thanks for having me. Take care, man. And of course, to all of the listeners, as always, thanks for hanging out with us. And we'll talk to you guys next week. 